That was pretty awesome, wasn't it? Well, again, it's a great opportunity. You've afforded me to be with you again, Kathleen and me. And we appreciate it so very, very much. Thank you for having us. It's good to look into your faces, each of you. One of the great teachings of the New Testament and which gets very little attention is something that happened 40 days after the resurrection. And that's my quiz for you today. What happened 40 days after the resurrection? The ascension. It was 40 days after Jesus showed himself alive with many infallible proofs that he ascended bodily into heaven. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1? And we'll read the first 11 verses. <clears throat> Reading from Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, Ye heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after He had said these things, He was lifted up. While they were looking on, And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your inspired word. And we pray, Father, this morning that we might understand it just a little bit better so that we might worship and serve better. Bless this congregation of your people. Bless our time together this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus ascended bodily into heaven. 
What does that mean? What is Jesus doing in heaven? How does the ascension affect you and I? Why was the ascension so important as to be included in the Apostles' Creed? And I'd like to present for your consideration at least five implications of the ascension and why it is so important to us. And I trust that this little study will be a blessing for all of us. So, let's get started. First of all, the ascension relates to glory. Glory is that part of a believer's outlook. It relates to our hope and it relates to our future. Secondly, the ascension relates to great joy. And folks, we need a lot of joy in this very unhappy world of ours as we go about our tasks serving our God. I'm sure it was a great source of encouragement to the disciples in the first century as they sought to fulfill the commission of our Lord. And uh, I trust it's of great joy to us. Thirdly, the ascension means that our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, is exalted to the highest place in heaven. And in his triumph, we are assured of our place together with him. Fourthly, the ascension means we have an intercessor in heaven. And it also means that when he ascended, he did not ascend empty-handed. He had gifts with him and he shed them abroad on his disciples. And we'll talk about that. And lastly, or fifthly, the ascension contains the promise, great promise of his return. Now, I have listed only five implications of the ascension. There are more. And I would just like to suggest that following this introductory talk, that perhaps you at some point would like to continue this study. The ascension relates to glory. The ascension is part of the Father's answer to the prayer of the Lord Jesus. You remember how Jesus prayed in John chapter 17? There are four verses that I want to call your attention to that relate to the ascension and relate to glory. John chapter 17, verse 1, verse 4, verse 5, and that great verse, verse 22. Father, the time has come, Jesus said. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. I have brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And then what John says in verse 22 of John 17 is just electrifying. You know, it's something to get excited about. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that God the Father gave Jesus the Son, that glory the Son gives to us. Can you imagine that? That's awesome! 
Underline that. Well, why does he do that? Listen to the verse again. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them so that. That's purpose now. Here's the purpose. That they may be one just as we are one. The glory of God is to be a uniting element in our lives. A uniting element within the church. We glorify God when we are one. Among other things, God's glory is to be a uniting factor. I think most of you here are aware that when Jesus came to earth, His glory was veiled or covered or hidden because He had taken the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of you and I, the likeness of men, mankind. Most people, when they saw Jesus, saw someone that looked just like another person. Some people saw someone that looked like a carpenter. Some people saw, oh, he's a guy from Nazareth. The prophet Isaiah said about the Lord Jesus, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He appeared so ordinary. His glory was covered. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, the disciples began early to see the uniqueness of Jesus. The differentness of Jesus. The specialness of Jesus. John's Gospel tells us that we, including John the writer, beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw His moral beauty. What great leader in our world can you say, I see a moral beauty in that individual? The disciples saw His care and love, His gracious words. They saw His miracles. And the various signs that Jesus did revealed some particular aspect of His work. His first miracle, the changing of water into wine, manifested or displayed His glory. When the wine was gone, wine a symbol of joy, when the joy was gone, who did they turn to for more joy but to Jesus? And He provided it in superabundance at that wedding. Secondly, the ascension filled the disciples with joy. But not just joy. Great joy, it says. And I want you to read with me or listen to the reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 50 to 53.
And this is how it goes. And he led them. And he led them, and they followed, I suppose. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. If your best friend had just left you, would you be happy about it? Would you be joyful about it? Would you be expressing great joy? (laughs) I'm glad he's gone. I doubt it. I doubt it. Would you rejoice or would you weep? And the text here says that they worshipped and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Why? Jesus' departure meant that now the promise that he had received from the Father could be bestowed upon his apostles. And ten days from that ascension, something tremendous would happen. It meant that in a few days, the Holy Spirit would come and indwell them. Another comforter, just like the one that had left. He would come and indwell them, give them power, and they would be witnesses to this wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in those 40 days between resurrection between the resurrection and ascension, had shown his disciples by those many convincing proofs that he was alive. These disciples needed to be sure that Jesus was alive. I hope you're all convinced, beyond a doubt this morning, that Jesus is alive. He's alive. They were sure of this, and they trusted this one. They had just left them, and he was leaving for their good, their blessing. That's why the ascension filled them with joy, because another comforter was coming, and he would never leave them, indwell them, and so they were joyful. Thirdly, the ascension meant that Jesus is exalted. And to help us understand the idea of exaltation a little more, we must remember his humiliation. The book of Hebrews reminds us that he for a little while was made a little lower than the angels. You know, we're a little lower than the angels, you and I. We're not angels. Even though we're saints. As a matter of fact, you know the name Santucci means a little saint. It means I have a small halo. <laughs> the book of Philippians tells us that he emptied himself 
taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, humbled himself to death on the cross. Remember that he was born of, in very humble circumstances, a stable, because there was no room for him in the inn. He grew up in Nazareth, a town of poor reputation. And Jesus once said of himself, you know, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's humiliation. Sounds like a homeless person almost. An exaltation is a reversal of humiliation. And I want you to listen to the Word of God. He humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name, the name, which is above every name. His name is above the name King. His name is above the name Emperor, Chancellor, Chairman, Caesar, His name is above the name Prophet or Ayatollah. And those of you who who read the Left Behind books, his name is above the name Potentate. His name is above the name Lucifer. He alone is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's exalted. And here's a great verse that I discovered. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 9. It says this, in that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. His name is the only one. Isn't that a great verse? Acts 2.33 says this. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, you now see this. And what did they see? They saw the effects of the Holy Spirit having come upon His disciples. Having been exalted, He now receives the promise of the Father in the person of the Holy Spirit now indwelling these dear people. A final step in his exaltation on the day of his coming is when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Jesus. This is the man Jesus. The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Jesus who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. The ascension means exaltation. High and lifted up. Friends, we have an exalted Savior. Fourthly, the ascension means we have an intercessor in heaven. 
Now I want you to listen to a few verses from the scriptures which tell us quite clearly what Jesus is doing in heaven. He's not just sitting on a throne with his arms folded, you know, and uh, just looking over things, and but not doing much. That's not the picture we get from the Word of God. The Lord Jesus is our high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Anybody here weak at times? No? As a matter of fact, that word weakness means every form of weakness. Every kind of weakness. None left out. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He is the one who has been tempted in all things as we are. And this means that He understands us. He knows our temptations and how hard some of them are. He knows that we need help. And He's there to provide that help. And it's our privilege to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To find grace to help in the time of need. And I think of uh, two people in the New Testament who found grace to help in time of need. And the first was a woman who was taken in adultery. No mention of the man. Mentions the woman taken in adultery. And Jesus, conscious of her need, conscious of her desperate situation, writes a little something on the ground and then says to the gathered throng there with the rocks still in their hands, I suppose, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he tells the woman, where are your accusers after they had all gone? He said, well, there are none. And Jesus gives her that reassurance, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Gracious to help in the time of need. And then I remember Peter. You know, that guy who denied Jesus three times. I'll never die for you. I'll never deny you. Excuse me. Never deny you. I'll give my life for you. Oh, yeah. He did eventually. Jesus, merciful to Peter. Gently, wonderfully restores him. And you know, he changed uh, Peter's occupation. Peter had been a a fisherman. And in John chapter 21, he changes his occupation to a shepherd. Isn't that neat? He just changes it. He makes him a pastor. Or shepherd. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 reminds us that He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him 
since he's always able to make intercession for them. And this verse carries with it the idea that God is able to carry every believer through all trials, all doubts, all temptations, right to the end of our pilgrimage here. He's with us here and to the end. Not just for a little while, but He's there. The thrones that uh, we've been speaking of, the throne of grace and uh, so forth, there are thrones that are thrones of judgment, but uh, thank God for the throne of grace. First John 2, verse 2 tells us that Jesus is our advocate. He's our lawyer. He's our counselor, our intercession. He speaks for us. He represents us fully and completely like no other can do. He's our advocate. Isn't that great? The ascension also means that when Jesus ascended from this earth, He ascended as a victor loaded with the spoils of the great triumph. As I said before, He did not return to heaven empty-handed. And the spoils that Jesus received, He gives away. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Christ received in order that He might give. He had earned in order to bestow. And the first thing He gives is He gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to all believers. He gave this gift to all of His disciples on the day of Pentecost, the day we believe the church began. And secondly, every believer has been given a gift. You know, to some it's to preach, to some it's to teach, to some it's to be a helper. To others, it's to maybe help organize things, to be an administrator. But I want you to listen to this verse here because I just love this verse. First Peter, First Peter 4.10 As each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That word manifold is what intrigued me. The word manifold is like the spectrum of light. It's colored. And the, uh, the spiritual gifts that we receive are like color. And when we employ our spiritual gift, it's beautiful. When we use what God has given us, it's beautiful. We display the many varied colored grace of God. And the grace of God is beautiful. And when we use what He has given us, we display that grace. There's an incentive to use the gifts that God has given you. Use them. Use them. And the last thing I want to think about this morning is that the Ascension story contains the great promise of His return. And I want want to reread verse 11 with you again. It says this, Acts 1.11 Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into the sky? And here, I'm going to change the translation from what I read to, I think, a better translation. This same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have, see, as you have watched him go into heaven. There are several things I want to notice about this verse. First, notice that the angels address the crowd, men of Galilee. Judas alone was from Judea. The rest were from Galilee. These men were Galileans, poor men, mostly uneducated men. The book of Acts chapter 4 calls them, in the mouths of the Pharisees, idiotes. Men of Galilee. It was to these men that Jesus had come and shared the good news and they had believed and some had given up their jobs to follow and they had lived with Jesus for some three and a half years. And now Jesus had just left them. And I'm not surprised at all that they continued looking up into heaven for perhaps just one more glimpse. The angel says, you know, there comes a time when you've got to stop doing that. Because there are people to be reached. And uh, it might be said of us, dear people of San Ramon Valley Bible Church, there are people to be reached. You can't just uh, keep looking for that one more glimpse, you know. Uh, be my messengers, be my ambassadors, be my witnesses, be my sent people. And then notice what the angels said to them. This same Jesus. And I love those three words. This same Jesus. No change. Still loving. Still caring. Still blessing, still giving people hope. He's the same. It's this same Jesus that you knew for those three and a half years on earth. This same Jesus that you came to love more than life itself is going to come back in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. And I'd like to suggest five ways in which they saw him going to heaven, those same five ways in which he's coming back. He ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Guess where he's coming back? The Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. He ascended personally, bodily. Guess how he's coming back? Personally, bodily. Malachi 3.1 He ascended visibly. He's going to return visibly. He ascended up to heaven. He's going to return from heaven. And He was received up in a cloud and He will come back in the clouds of heaven. I believe those clouds are probably clouds of angels. But He was received up in a cloud and He'll come back on the clouds of heaven. This same Jesus 
that we trusted for eternal life is coming back. When? I don't know the date. I believe it will be soon. Jesus himself said, in the last book of the Revelation, Behold, I come quickly. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The ascension, there are so many wonderful issues connected with it, and I just want to recap. The ascension relates to glory. Glory. The ascension filled the disciples with great joy. Great joy. And the ascension means that the Lord Jesus we love is highly exalted. Never be ashamed of Jesus. He's highly exalted. And the ascension means that we have an intercessor in heaven and one who gives gifts to his children. And the ascension comes with the promise that this same Jesus is coming again. Be encouraged. Be excited. Be challenged to worship and to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so very grateful for an ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And we're expecting his return. We're expecting. And Father, we thank you that it's the same Jesus. The same Jesus we read of in the Scriptures. The same Jesus who walked among us, doing good, blessing people. And thank you, Father, that we'll be with him forever when he comes for his saints. Bless this congregation of your people. We pray, Father, that uh, each one will be encouraged by your word. We pray that each one may be diligent in sharing with others the good news of this same Jesus. Thank you, Father. Bless us as we leave one another, as we know that we leave one another, but we never leave you. Or you never leave us. And so we're grateful. And we say thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.